So in college, I had the joy of being part of some great college ministries. And one of the practices that we always did at the beginning of uh, every semester was we're meeting our new groups and our new teams is what we did like most Christian groups will do is share our testimonies. Every now and then, every once in a while, we'd hear you know, the radical story of someone who saved some, some great sin or uh, a dire circumstance. But more often than not, because like most groups and perhaps maybe even here, you know, most people grew up in, in Christian homes. So the most common way that these stories would start is, well, you know, I grew up in a Christian home. I don't remember a time that I really didn't know Jesus. And they would go on to tell their story as if it wasn't really interesting or even passionless um, because they really even feel some shame that they have no great circumstance that we were saved from. Um, but this morning, and perhaps some of you even feel this as well, is that you don't have much to share. But this morning we've heard already in what we've sung, what we've prayed, as it will be in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And this glorious, all too familiar passage. And what is true is that those who have grown up in the church, doesn't matter where you're from, no matter what you believe you were or were not saved from, there you are glorious miracles of grace. And you testify to the wonder of God's grace. And so grace is a word we use so much as Christians, we sing about in all our hymns. We can run in danger of forgetting its meaning. And on top of this, this passage in Ephesians 2 is so familiar that we can grow cold to its power and its glory. But this is my prayer for you this morning. The prayer that Paul prayed for these Ephesians right before our passage. And this morning that the eyes of your hearts would be enlightened to know the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might. And so if I were to sum up this, this passage in one statement, it is this. That the grace of God is the glorious power of God to give dead sinners life in the Son of God. And so if you look at this passage and you find the main subject and the main action, and you take out all the supporting clauses and words, you're left with one clear statement that Paul is communicating. And it is this, found in verse 4 and 5. God made us alive. That is the main point. That is the main subject, which is God. The main action is making alive and everything else supporting this. So if the main action is, is making alive and necessitates that that which was before is not alive, or to use the word from the text, is dead. And so this we will start in discussing the necessity of grace and so for those of you who are note takers, this is the outline we'll be following. In verses 1 through 3, the great need for grace. And in verses 4 through 6, the glorious power of grace. In verses 7 through 10, the grand purpose of grace. So let us now hear from God's word. If you're reading the Pew Bibles, you can find it in page 976. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, 
among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, creating Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so there is good reason why grace is one of the most used words among Christians. One of the most common themes of our hymns it is truly wondrous. It has because of what grace brought us out of, out of our hopeless situation. And what Paul tells us here is that before the grace of God came to us in time, we were dead in our sins and we lived in the consequences of our sin. So what does it mean that we are dead in our sin? Well, there are two places I want us to point to, to look to in this very letter that will help us understand what is being communicated here. So in the parallel passage right under this one, verse, verses 12 of chapter 2, gives us this statement of man without grace. And remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. So we have your alienation and without God, separated from God. And so then look farther down in chapter 4, verse 18, speaking of those outside of grace, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of hearts. So we have your first to understand about this deadness, this spiritual deadness, is that it's being separated from God, alienated from him, alienated from the life of God, it's said in 4.18. For God is the life-giving God. In him we live and move and have our being. All life comes from him. So to be separated from God is to be separated from life itself, which then begs the question, why were we separated? Is not God a merciful God? Is he not a loving God? With this idea of spiritual death, our mind must go back to where it all started at the beginning when this spiritual death entered in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3 with the first man and woman, Adam and Eve. They're created in the image of God and live before God in his presence in the garden, his special dwelling place on earth. But God gave them one command. Do not eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what did God say would be the punishment for their disobedience? Death. The day you eat this, you will surely die. And what happened that day when Adam and Eve disobeyed? Did they die? Not, not right away, not physically. 
but instead they were separated from God. Banished from the garden, from the presence of God. They were separated and alienated from God. And so as went Adam, so did all of mankind with him, both you and me. Man who was once in the very presence of God, in paradise, was now without God. And so why must there be separation? Because God is holy. And so when we say that God is holy and the holiness of God, it's not so much an attribute of God, but what all his attributes are, the splendor of all his attributes, that he is perfect in every way. And so because he is completely perfect because he is, he is above all creation. And so therefore, because he is perfect in every way, only that which is perfect, that which is holy, can be in the presence of the Holy One. For holiness must always remain holy. And so that is why in uh, verse 4 of chapter 1 of Ephesians, that God predestined us to holiness. For that is the only way in which we could be before him. And so therefore a sinner, one who not only sins, but whose very nature is sin, is in complete contrast to all that God is. And in his very core, a complete offense to the holiness of God. It must be alienated from him. And if that sounds too strong, I can assure you it is not strong enough because one of the effects of sin is a numbness to the heinousness of sin and its offense. And that is why mankind is dead. Mankind is numb to all these things, to all things spiritual with no regard to God and his ways. Brothers and sisters, this was us before the grace of God. And so then everything else that follows in this first part of Ephesians 2 is explaining what it is, what it is to be dead in sin. So we look down, we follow the course of this world. Dead to God, we became active to the world, identifying with its ways and its desires. And the world is in rebellion to God. And so were we. But not only did we follow the world, we followed the prince of the power of the air. We followed Satan. So, so you see this progression. It's not only that we are following the ones who are in rebellion to God, but we were following the very one who is leading this rebellion. And this picture, this picture is one of enslavement, a dominion laid over us that we could not break free of. For we had one master, sin, with no protection from its abuses and the attacks of Satan and his forces. But this picture that Paul presents is not just that we're trapped in sin, but we're also full participants in sin. All of us, our thoughts, our actions, and our desires partook in sin, and we're corrupted by it. And so Paul uses two phrases here to describe us. First one, at the end of verse two, sons of disobedience. What's saying is we're rebels, waging war against God, the God of the universe. We're active in our disobedience, for sin is disobedience. And we were living in the passions of our flesh. As rebels against God's direction, we followed our passions instead of God's ways, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. All of our thoughts and desires were their very selves acts of rebellion against God. And so this is talking about our, our inclinations. Because we were dead in sins, we were not inclined to the things of God. We were dead to all things of God. 
None of our thoughts rightly went to God. None of our desires led him to him, but we are all of our actions in the opposite direction of God. And so then comes the second description. We're children of wrath. Because of our rebellion, it was fitting for us to be eternally condemned and face the wrath of God. And so do you, do you realize the sorrow of this? And we see in Ephesians 5, 1 verse 5 that it shows that the final outcome of those who are saved by grace is to be adopted sons. But instead of adopted sons, all mankind without grace, sons of disobedience. Instead of children of a great inheritance, children of wrath. And this was the condition of everyone, both you and me, like the rest of mankind. And so the primary audience here, Paul is being used as a church to a group of, of believers, people in Christ. And so brothers and sisters, have you forgotten this reality? Have you forgotten where you came from? Have you grown numb to your sin? Are you dormant to its obscenity? Though you have been saved, your sin today is just as offensive to God right now as it was before you were saved. For God has not changed. He is still holy. And the war against the flesh must still be fought. So do not trust or give in to your passions and desires of the flesh. Today, repent of your sin. Turn from it. Do not linger in it. For the only fruit of sin is death. And so why does this matter starting here with sin? Because how you view sin is parallel to how you will view grace. A serious view of sin creates a serious view of grace. An awareness of sin's great power leads to an awakening to the magnificent power of God's grace. And understanding the sheer ugliness of sin will lead to a great delight in the beauty of grace. But a low view of sin as a mere slip-up, something that can be easily forgiven, will give you a shallow view of grace. And so if you grow numb to sin, you will grow numb to grace. And my friends, if you're here and you're not a believer this morning, what Paul is describing here as the past of these people is your present reality. And what you face now is the holy wrath of God. And what you need to be saved from is not a purposeless life. It's not sickness. It's not poverty. It's not misfortune. But the righteous wrath of God that will not just punish sin, but punish the sinner. And you cannot save yourself because you're condemned not just for what you have done, but by your very nature as fully corrupted by sin. And this means that reversing your life's actions, cleaning up your act, getting back on the path of religion, it will never be enough. No, you are hopeless. And what you need is a power beyond comparison, power that not even the creation of the world compares to, but a power that causes the dead to rise. What you need is the grace of God. And so this will bring us to our second section, verses 4 through 6, the glorious power of grace. And so we read those first two words, but God. And those are glorious words. Meditate on those words this afternoon, and they'll awaken you to heavenly realities, just those two words alone. But God, 
being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And so the main subject of this passage, as we said before, is now revealed. God in all action verbs here all, is all his doing, all modifiers describing him. It's as if Paul now summons our eyes to gaze at the wonder of his God who works grace. For grace is all of God's doing, his power and working alone. So who is this God? He's rich in mercy. What is the ground for his grace? His great love. And when did God show us grace? When we were dead in our trespasses. So, so why does all this matter? All this describing him? Because all of this, his, his disposition, the, the grounds, and the timing of God's grace, all of that brings to fullness, not just the power of grace, but the glorious power of grace. And what am I saying there? That because now we come into the heart of the passage here in these verses. And staying before the dead, deadness and utter hopelessness of our condition, of ones whom grace is shown to us, it does, it does magnify the display of God's power. But what makes it glorious is the glory of the one who showed it. In other words, the beauty and the splendor and the wonder of grace comes from the beauty and the splendor and wonder of God himself. So now, church, I want us to see and marvel at this God of grace that Paul lays out here in these verses. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love. The ground of God's grace is his love. It is his love that was the initiation for a redeeming man. A plan formulating the eternal counsel of God before the foundation of the world as working out of this plan, God sent his son into the world. And so all former acts of, acts of grace, from, from the exodus to the slaying of lambs and goats, all pointed to him, finding their fulfillment in him. For the culmination, the highest demonstration of grace was at the cross, in the death of the only begotten son. And since the ground of all of God's working of grace through Christ is his great love, it affirms this for us. That God does not love us because, because Christ died. But rather, Christ died because God loves us. We all know John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. It is the love of the Father that sent the Son to the cross. John 16.27, For the Father himself loves you. Remember that, beloved. There was no negotiation by the Son to turn the love of the Father to you, but rather the very love of the Father comes to you in the Son. And the Father who loves us, what does it say? He's also rich in mercy. So to quote the Puritan Thomas Watson, mercy sweetens all of God's other attributes. Mercy and grace are oftentimes used synonymously, and though they are very similar, not exact, and, and here's, here's how mercy relates to grace. So mercy, mercy oftentimes the Bible, like in the Old Testament specifically, the book of Psalms, it talks about the fatherly compassion of God. That he has moved to his very heart to show compassion. 
And so in, so in adding this here of mercy and a discussion about grace, that God is rich in mercy, here's what reminds us. That this God of grace is not a stoic God who saves, but one who takes great delight in saving his people. And so I, lo- I love this verse. In Jeremiah 32, verses 40 and 41, God talking about saving his people, hear this, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that will not turn away from doing good to them. I will rejoice in doing them good. And I will plan for them in the land in faithfulness with all my heart and with all my soul. His wrath is sure. He will punish sinners, but his mercy overwhelms those whom he saves. His mercy will never run out on you. Your sins may be great and numerous, and you may think that you're the one in whom mercy will run out on. But here is your confidence. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him graciously give us all things? The grace of the Father cost him greatly, cost him the sacrifice of his one and only son. But he who is rich in all things, in grace and mercy and power, he can pay the cost. Quote another Puritan, Richard Sibbs, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. So our Father is rich in mercy. And so, brothers and sisters, do you see this glorious splendor of grace communicated here? That Paul wants his readers to feel overwhelmed by this grace. It comes to us like waves crashing upon the shore, hitting rocks over and over, overwhelming it. That God is rich in mercy, that he loved us with a great love, saved us by his grace, and to add even more to it here, while we were dead in sin. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. The perfect son who knew no sin died for the ones who were dead in sin. But God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So brothers and sisters, this is grace. Is God making us alive in Christ? While we were dead in sin, a dead man can't do anything, let alone contribute to the giving of life. Life must come into him from outside of him. And that life is given to us by God in Christ. It's found in Christ alone. And so then when we come here in verse 6 and we see these two actions, who raised us and seated us, still, still God acting here, modified with the phrase with him being Christ, and then we come to the key, key phrase in the entire letter of Ephesians, in Christ Jesus. This is what we call union with Christ. And there's, there's so much we can say about union with Christ. But here for now, in this verse, this is what it means. All that God did to Christ, he did to those who are united to Christ. So look back quickly at chapter 1 and verse 19 of Ephesians. And it says, And what is this immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that has to be named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And so in raising Christ from the dead, it was a display of God's immeasurable power to overcome the power of death. And when he seated Christ at his right hand, it was the power of God over all his enemies 
with Christ being triumphant over all things, over all the powers of darkness. And so, brothers and sisters, this happens to us as well. Is that when Christ died, when he was raised, so were we. In Christ Jesus, the power of God's grace comes to us in Christ. If we're not talking, when we talk about grace, we're not talking about a thing, about a substance. We're talking about a person. The grace of God is Christ. And only in Christ does this power of grace come to the believer. And so see what this power does to you. If you are in Christ, it is not a power that makes you just undead, but alive in Christ. You now live in a new life you have. For by grace you were saved, and by grace you will be sustained. And so, brothers and sisters, the grace of God is just as necessary today as it was when you were first saved. And so he has conquered sin in you once and for all. You share in the victory of Christ. But though the power of sin is no longer in you, the presence of sin still dwells in you. And so even today, we, have all, we all have much sin to confess. But being united to Christ is the promise that your indwelling sins will be defeated in you. For Christ is risen. For the God of peace himself will sanctify you completely. And your whole spirit and soul and body will be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. So that God's grace empowers you to believe this truth that if you confess your sins, you will be forgiven because Christ is still risen, still interceding for you at the right hand of the Father. So in faith, turn from your sins today. Confess them to God. Confess them to one another and walk by the grace of God in the path of obedience to glory. And so my friend, again, if you're not in Christ, you're not in grace. It's only this glorious power that can save you from death. The only place that this glorious power of grace can be found is in Christ alone, who is this grace. You are dead in your sins, but the one who stands before you, Christ, is the one who gives life to the dead. So look to Christ alone, believe in him alone, and you'll be raised to life with him. So then we come into our final section here, verses 7 through 10 the grand purpose of grace. And so looking at in verse seven, it starts with the words, so that, signifying that what follows it is the purpose of all that has come before it. And why did God make us alive, raise us up with Christ and seat us at the right hand? So that he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. The purpose of all of God's works to bring us from death to life is so that for all eternity, God may reveal his infinite glory to us. And this, brothers and sisters, is what we are made for, to delight in God himself. And so why am I saying glory here? So if you see at the end of verse 7, the word kindness often translated as goodness in other places. So if you remember back into Exodus 33 and 34, So after Israel had sinned against God and Moses went into the presence of God in the tent of meeting to intercede for the people and plead with God. At the end of it, Moses boldly asked the highest request. Show me your glory. And so what was God's response? What did he say? 
Exodus 33:18. I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim my name before you, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. So God's goodness is his glory. And the goodness of God is the overwhelming glory of his grace and his great love and his rich mercy, which we discussed earlier. And though the glory of Moses' face faded, we know that the glory that we will be shown will not fade. It will be for all eternity. Because our confidence is this, in this phrase that we already talked about, we saw earlier, in Christ Jesus, who is the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior. The immeasurable riches of God's grace will continue to come to us for all eternity in Christ, who we are united to. And also looking back in Ephesians 1, verse 6, Paul says that that all this grace comes to us for blessed in the beloved. And so this past year or so, we've been in the gospel of Luke. And if you remember in in Luke chapter 3, at the baptism of Jesus, when Christ was raised out of the water and the voice of the Father proclaimed, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So God the Father is eternally pleased with God the Son because the Son, the beloved Son, eternally pleases and loves the Father. Also later on in chapter 5 of Ephesians, Paul will call us beloved sons. And it's because of this. Because by being united to Christ, the love that the Father has for the Son is now ours. For this is what the Lord prayed before his death in John 17, 26. I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. And so, brothers and sisters, this great love, this immeasurable riches of, of his grace is yours today in Christ Jesus. All of your days, you're being led by the hand of a loving father, your heavenly father. And everything that comes to you and happens to you even the hard times, even the challenges, even the trials are given to you by the hand of a loving Father who lavishes his goodness on his people so that today you may say with the psalmist, oh, how abundant is your goodness. You've been raised to the highest throne room and are secured in the highest love. You who were once condemned rebels and children of wrath and dead in sin, are now swimming in the immeasurable grace of your Father. And this is the glorious power of grace, but it's not the final purpose of grace. For it does not stop with you, for the people of God exist to display the glory of God's grace to the world. The church exists to display God's glory and wisdom to all of creation. And so we've been saved by grace to point all others to the one who showed grace to us. That all we do is for this purpose, And this is the grand purpose as children of grace to point to the glory of our Father. And so we look now in verses 8 and 9, these two most well-known verses of this passage. We have the summation of the whole passage. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So grace, as we said, is God's work. It's God's work alone. We contribute nothing to our salvation. 
And so now the word faith is added here. Grace through faith. And what is faith? Well, faith is not a work, but believing in the works of Jesus and the person of Jesus. You believe into, his, into Jesus, into his life, to his death and resurrection. Faith is the spirit uniting you to the risen Christ so that you might receive all his benefits. He lived a perfect life and fully obeyed God. So all his works become yours. You receive the very righteousness of Christ to cover you. So that because of what we talked earlier in the holiness of God, now only covered by Christ's righteousness, can you stand before God in right standing with him? He died to pay the penalty of sin. And so that your guilt may be fully taken away because you're united to him. And on the third day, he rose from the dead, defeating all powers of death, so that you know on the final day, death will not triumph over you. I had the final say, but you also will be raised to eternal life in the kingdom of God. Faith is grasping all of this only in Christ alone, by the Spirit who unites us to Christ. And so we live by faith every day, and salvation by grace through faith. It is a gift. It's unmerited, undeserved. Salvation is not causes us to look to ourselves, but to the glory of our Savior Christ. It's purpose not for us to boast in ourselves, but to the boast in the one who saved us in Christ. And so by faith, we believe in the one who saved us. We might proclaim his glory. And so the call to faith goes out to all who hear this word. And this faith must be your own. You cannot rely on anyone else's faith. And so, so kids and teenagers in here, just because your parents believe does not mean that you believe as well. You yourself have must, must have faith in Christ alone. If you're here this morning and not a believer, are you caught up in your own works? You do not realize you're not in Christ? Have you claimed comfort in your own works, in your church attendance, in your moral goodness compared to others? Or on the other hand, are you so weighed down by your sins that you feel unworthy to come to Christ? Whichever one describes you, the, the plight you're in is the same. It's your eyes are on yourself. Turn them away from yourself and look to Christ. He is the sufficient Savior. And if you call upon his name, you will be saved. For you are dead in your sins. Stand condemned before the holy God. But Christ has done all the works for you to be saved. So truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear it will live. So today, turn from your sins, believe into Christ and walk in his ways. And so this transitions us to the final verse, final purpose of grace, to walk in good works. In verse 10. So in verse 7, it gives us a taste of grace for all eternity. What verse 10 reminds us is that this reality is now, and grace affects what we do today. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them.
So we are God's workmanship. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works. All this reminds us with, with creation language that we have been made new. That we're not just undead, but alive in Christ. And the now but not yet new creation raised to life by a glorious power. And these good works, God's prepared for us beforehand. And so that is glorious, that the reminder earlier in Ephesians 1, that our final state of glory has been predestined before the foundation of the world, does not just mean that only the end has been predestined, but also means the means to that end also. And so we know with confidence that we will be glorified, that we will overcome the world. But now the good works we do now on the path that God has laid out for us to grow in grace and sanctification are the path to glory. Grace in making us alive is God's work so that we might live to do good works in Christ Jesus. So if you notice that this this passage is bracketed by the words walk. So before we walked in sin and death, but now by the grace of God, we walk in Christ for good works. So this walking emphasizes direction, going somewhere. We're disciples, followers of Christ on the path to glory. This world is not our home. And so when we think about the good works we are called to do, there is so much that you could take and apply this for grace. Even looking at the last three chapters. So give you guys homework this afternoon. And I know youth, Deborah and I have said that we're never going to give you guys homework, but we're making an exception today because we didn't have class. Um, but I want everyone to actually first read Ephesians 1. Meditate on the wonder of that glorious grace. And then see in verses 4 through 6, the commands that Paul lays out for us there. And see what comes to you and strikes you out. Is it speaking the truth in love, speaking in grace, walking in humility and gentleness? All of those, everything that Paul describes here is what it means to walk in this. And so to recap this section, the purpose of God's grace is that he shows us the immeasurable goodness for all eternity so that we might be the praise of his glory. So we may not boast in ourselves, but be saved by Christ alone and boast in him alone and so that we may walk in good works today. And so before I end, I want to focus briefly on what I believe is the, the main focus of this walk in this letter and apply it here to our lives today. So oftentimes when we read this famous passage in Ephesians 2, we have the focus of individual salvation. And while that is certainly a good way to think about it, we often miss the fact that the primary audience here is a corporate group of believers hearing this message as one body. And that becomes more clear in the parallel passage right after this one in verses 11 through 22, where the result of God's saving action through grace is the building up of a temple for God's spirit to dwell in, the church. And the mystery that is revealed through Christ, God is reconciling all people into one body, one church. So Ephesians has this corporate and cosmic focus to it that taken at the individual level alone will never fully grasp the fullness of this message. And so when we come to chapter 4 of Ephesians in verse 1, and we read, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, 
And so this calling is everything that came before it, everything that we just read, that we've been saved by grace, raised to new life. And so everything that follows then, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, all these actions are in relation to others, what we do with one another. And so this is how we directly show that the grace of God is true and active in our lives, that we need one another to fully display the grace of God. And so here it is. So the grace of God is most glorified in us when we live as flourishing active members of the body, as church members, living out those, those one another commands of Scripture. So this shows true spiritual life. And so in this day and age in our culture, Christianity has become very individualistic. Corporate life has been diminished. Circumstances certainly the past few years only added to that strain, that difficulty. But what I'm encouraged by and what brings me delight is that when I look out here and I see all the faces here and, and this church is filled with people who walk in the grace of God by serving and building up the body. And I myself have been the, the recipient of so much love and service from so many people in this church. And so my call to all of us this morning is to endure. I encourage them to continue in this grace. Do not grow weary in doing good. Continue serving and loving one another. If you serve in an official position, elder, deacon, or teacher, whatever it is, continue in it, serving it joyfully. For it is only by the grace of God and the blood of Christ that you can do it and have the privilege to do it. But even if you not, do not have an official position, continue living as an active member of the body, gathering on Sunday mornings, other gatherings throughout the week, like members' meetings, prayer meetings, whatever it is, cook dinner for families, whatever it is to serve, because there is a higher calling to all of it. Grace has brought us from walking to death into walking the life. To be united to Christ, our bond of peace, and so unite him, we're united to all those who are united to him. And this new body is the temple of the Lord. And the temple is where the glory of God dwells. So, saved by grace, we walk in good works. And what does this mean? It's by doing everything that is fitting for the glory of God to dwell among us. That is what it means to walk in these good works doing everything that is fitting for the glory of God to dwell among us. And so know this high calling, brothers and sisters, that we're not here in, here in the nation's capital. We're not too far from where our government is and where there's many important people with many important jobs. But you, church member, have a much more important job, a higher calling than all of them. You live and work to manifest the glory of God through the church to all of creation all good works we walk in are for this purpose. And so because of this, as a brick in the temple, as a member of the redeemed body, all your works are for building up this temple and body. They have eternal value to it. There are no small or meaningless tasks. When you call a member who is lonely just to check in, bring dinner to a family, Work on the audio visual, whatever it is, speak the truth in love, be kind to one another, tender hearted, 
forgiving one another, all of that furnishes the temple of the glory of God so that he may be known. Because the ultimate purpose of grace and what we are called to do in response is to worship the God who has shown grace, to exalt him alone. Ephesians 3, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power that has worked within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. The grace of God has come to us so that we may worship God forever. And so, beloved, your story is glorious, for it testifies to the one who has made you alive when you were dead in sin. And now as one people who are made alive, all that we say and do, we sing to his grace, to the praise of his glorious grace. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, the God of all grace, we praise you this morning. We ask that you show us the immeasurable power of your grace, that we are reminded of it, and that we walk in it for all of our days, Lord God. Teach us and instruct us, and we thank you that our hope is in Christ alone. So we ask all this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.